0: It's good to see each one here tonight, and we're going to conclude our study of the battle for belief. If you'll remember, when we began this series of lessons this year, we began studying about what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He said, "...for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh." For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For the casting down of strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ. What we have begun is a study of the battle for the minds of men. We're not out here trying to capture people for... Uh, a nation, for a country. We're trying to capture people for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and bring them into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When we begin tonight, we want to discuss the uh, lesson, and for some reason my scripture stuck on screen. If I have to, I'll turn it off tonight. But uh, as we begin our study or series of lessons, we emphasize basically that there is an approach of trying, first of all, to establish that there is a God in heaven. You have to, as you battle for the minds of men, establish that first. Then you have to begin beyond that and emphasize more than that there's just a God, but that he's revealed himself through his word. Then we move to an understanding and appreciation of the fact that, God has revealed His Word that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's that point that many people stop. They don't go on to say there's something else you must do. They will say there's a God, there's His Word, and there's Jesus. But we have to go beyond that to emphasize the church. We have to emphasize that all the saved are in the church. And you say, well, how do you know that? The passage is on the screen. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to the church those who were being saved. And so tonight, uh, we're going to turn off the screen, and uh, for some reason it's stuck, so that's where it's going to stay. But we want to talk about a little bit more about what the Bible teaches about the one true church. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, we learn there how many there are in this church. Paul is giving a series of ones, and he is saying that in Ephesians 4 and verse 4 there is one body. And someone says, well, how do you know that means there's just one church? Because you can back up earlier in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and it says, He gave him head to be over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What you recognize from that is, there is only one body church and when you emphasize that there's just one body and there's just one church you have to recognize that there's some people trying to say well which one is it some people want to have a religion based upon their their family history their background other people want to adapt to the culture in which they're in you know in joshua chapter 24 verse 15 he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the God of your fathers who served on the other side of the river, or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice the way he said, The gods which your fathers served. Are you going to just have a hand me down religion? Or are you going to have a religion that's based on the culture in which you are in? the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He says, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I thought it was very appropriate this afternoon that during this funeral service for Sister Ora Kessler, her husband, Brother George Kessler, got up and spoke for just a moment or two and talked about how she had an influence on converting him to the Lord. He gave the background of saying that when he had worked at a factory, he cast his eye on her and found that she was the woman that he wanted. And the first thing that he did when he asked her out for a date, she says to him, where do you go to church? And he said, well, I've been raised a Presbyterian. And she said, well, you'll have to go to church with me. He said after a period of time, he learned that he couldn't find his church in the Bible because of her. He said, I knew it had to be there, but he says, I come to find out that it wasn't. He realized that his rearing, his background was not always what you find and what you think is there. We have to make sure that what we're going to choose to do is the right thing. And so tonight, what I would like for us to do is to recognize how you identify and find the right church. We're going to look at four things. The distinctive nature of the church. We're going to look at at its establishment. We're going to look at its organization. And then we're going to look at, at the things that one must do to enter it. So let's, first of all, look at this idea of a designation of something being distinctive. What is it to say that something is distinct? It's unique. It's different from other things. God's people have always been unique and distinct. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 19 and verse 5, he talks about God's people being a special people. In fact, he uses the word treasure. Or you go to uh, the book of Titus, chapter 2 and verse 14. He says that he might redeem us, and purify unto himself a special people, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. In First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he also brings up that there are a special or peculiar people whom God has chosen. What is it that makes the Lord's church unique, special, Why is it that we are the chosen of God? Not because you and I have somehow identified ourselves as being so special to God, but because God has said, these are my people. Because these people have done what I told them to do. We are nonconformist. That is, we don't adapt ourselves to the world. We stand distinct from the world. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 He says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We don't bend our lives to match the world. We stand distinct from the world we talk different, we act different, we dress different, we live different and become distinct. But like anything of real value, there's some people who try to fake it. They try to copy it. They don't want the real thing. They want to try to be able to pawn off on you something that is not genuine, not as true. For instance... I remember years and years ago when I was a young boy when cubic zirconia become a, a popular thing. And there were people who would sell uh, jewelry, sell, in fact, engagement rings to people and tell them, oh, you're buying this big, beautiful diamond and I can give you a great deal on it. And I can remember the... Uh, Television advertisement coming out of Birmingham, Alabama said, you want to be able to tell a real diamond? See if it'll cut glass. If it won't cut glass, you have bought a fake. Or I can remember when uh, counterfeit currency. I guess when I worked at the bank, it seemed to be more important to me of making sure I didn't take counterfeit money. But we have people who try to Take and fake what is true. But do you realize in the Bible there are people who actually believe that they are doing what God says and they're not? Matthew 7, verses 21 and 22. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of my Father, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done many mighty works? And he says, Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. You see, there are people who actually have bought in to various religions. And are there enough religions today in this country? Well, sure there are. You can visit religions and they'll give it just about any way you want it. It's just like going to a food court in a mall. Okay, if you want Chinese food, if you want American food, you want Mexican food, or you want Oriental food or uh, Mediterranean food, you can just choose what you want. When it comes to churches, there's the same sort of idea. But is there a problem where there are people who are frauds and fakes and not genuine? Well, sure there is. And Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says, And no great wonder, for Satan himself fashions himself into an angel of light. It's no great thing, therefore, if his ministers fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness. There are people who want you to think that they are doing it. And some of them are sincerely deceived themselves. But there is a distinction that has to be made And that is, when you start looking at the distinctive nature of the church, you have some things that mark it out from the very beginning. For instance, you have God's name. Acts 4, verse 12 said, There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. Now, what if you're out here and you're looking for a church, and this is the Lutheran church. Or, this is a Calvinist church. Or, what if this is another church? Or, that you have to have a name. Matthew, or excuse me, Romans 16, verse 16 says, The churches of Christ salute you. It would need to be a name that reflects both ownership and honor for the Lord. There's some other distinctive natures of the church that I want to sort of move into, that of the organization of the church. If you'll remember, when you start thinking about the organization of the church, as you start looking around today, how are some churches organized? It's been in the news a lot over the last couple of weeks that the Pope of the Catholic Church is going to step down. He is going to resign his position and let them establish another one. And the organization of the Catholic Church is this. You have the Pope, who's the head. Under that you have the College of Cardinals. And then from that you have your bishops. And then you have your parish priest. And from the top down is the way the decisions are made. But do you know what? When you go to your Bible, you do not read about a Pope. Nor do you read about a cardinal. Nor do you read about a bishop presiding over a number of churches. Nor do you read about a priest who has the power to forgive sins. Other churches are organized in a congregational way. Many of the churches that are indigenous to the United States, that is, they sprang up here or they started here, are congregational churches. Many of the community churches are congregational in order. What that means is they vote and decide on their own what they're going to do. That is, the congregation will get together and say, well, what do we want to do? Well, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's all vote on it. And that's the way the decisions are made. Some of them are ruled by synods. That means that they have a group of people who will elect representatives from several congregations in a geographical area and they'll meet together and they'll decide how all those are going to conduct themselves. What about the church of the Bible? How are they organized? Well, one thing we know is the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And according to Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the supreme head of the church. He has decided how we will worship Him. He has decided what we will do, what we will call ourselves. The Lord has decided all those things. The Lord has also designated that there will be men who would serve in various roles within that body. There are people who are known as elders. They're also known as pastors. They're also known as bishops or overseers. In Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Spirit made you bishops, overseers, to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. In Titus 1 and verse 5, Paul said he left Titus and Crete that he might set in order the things that are wanting, lacking, and ordain elders in every city as I gave you charge. You see, there's this establishment of a plan or a pattern or an organization. In first Peter chapter five and verse two, Peter says to the elders who are among you, I exhort who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, to tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint nor for filthy lucre or for unrighteous gain. You tend the flock of God which is among you. That's the reason why elders always served in local congregations. They didn't serve over a group. They served over a local congregation. And they are always in the plural because they were the overseers, not the overseer. Philippians 1 and verse 1, when Paul writes his letter to the saints at Philippi, he says, with the bishops and the deacons. That is the organization that they have. Now, in our world today, we have a lot of people who are known by a lot of titles. For instance, you will quite frequently have people say, Who's the pastor at Bobby Branch? Do you know what I say? I say, We got seven of them. And I say, Wow, y'all must be a really big church. And the, quite often they'll say, Well, aren't you a pastor? I said, No, I'm a preacher. We don't use titles. We don't use titles like Reverend. And you say, Well, why not? Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 10. Be not many of you called teachers. Don't be called Father. Why? Because the Lord never intended that you elevate someone to a, quote, clergy class. See, in the New Testament, all Christians are priests because we all present spiritual sacrifices to God. So the organization of the church makes it distinctive. So does its establishment. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, And upon this rock I will build my church. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the one who established it. It belongs to him in the sense that he built it in his day. Now let me sort of deal with this here, which I think is important. When did that happen? Well, everything that you read prior to Acts chapter 2 always has the kingdom or the church in the future. After Acts 2, you have everything looking back to its establishment. Mark 9, verse 1, he said, There are some of you standing here who shall not taste of death till you shall see the kingdom present or come with power. It's going to happen while some of you people are living. He said that about a year before he died on the cross. And yet again, I go back to Acts 2, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the church. You've got to have it in existence before you can add to it. Any church that came after the time of Acts 2 that was established after that is too young of a church. So if I've got a church that is established in, say, eighteen hundred. Or 1500 or 600 AD. It's too young of a church because the Lord's church was established on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, with that idea in mind, the Lord established his church. It's distinctive in nature. How does one become a part of that church? we recognize that the Lord's pattern is not just anybody do whatever they want to. In fact, Jesus made it clear it was rather narrow in nature. You remember Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? Enter ye in at the narrow gate. He's talking about the wide is a way that leads to destruction, but he says there's a narrow way. In fact, Jesus put it like this in John 14 and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me or except by me. There's no other way to get there. In John 10 and verse 10, he describes people who try to climb up some other way. He says they're just thieves. They're just destroyers. There's only one way to get into the Lord's church, and that is to follow His plan and His pattern. And if there's a plan or a pattern that does not follow the Lord's, it won't get you in. Well, what are some of those steps? You know, as I present the plan of salvation tonight, sometimes those of us who've been Christians for many years may think, These are just simple. You can rattle them off real quickly. But you have to realize we've got young people who are growing up here and they need to hear these same lessons that we've heard all of our lives because the gospel doesn't change. We have people who visit with us from time to time and and they're trying to search for the right thing and as I'm trying to find it, I need to be able to present to them the plan that God presented. So here's what plan is presented. In Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 12, that whoever should call upon the name of the Lord should be saved. He's going to reverse backwards and say, well, how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they are sent? What he does is reverse backward by saying, you've got someone sending. God sent his son. He sent others to preach his word. Then from that you have the hearing of his message. So the very first thing you have is someone hearing. We studied just a few weeks ago from Luke chapter 8, where the Lord says, take heed how you hear. Make sure that you're listening careful to what the Lord says. What does he say? To believe on Jesus. What does that mean? John 8 verse 24, Jesus said that I'll tell you the truth unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You've got to believe that I am the Christ. In Acts chapter 16, you've got a really good illustration there. The jailer is watching over the prisoners. It's about midnight. And Paul and Silas are let go. And uh, the jailer comes in. And he wants to know, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Beyond that, a person has to repent of their sins. You've got to realize, I have sinned against the Lord. I've done things that are wrong. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 36, Peter in his preaching said, This same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? We don't know what we need to do. Peter said, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Let every one of you repent. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, Paul's at Athens. He's preaching to a group of Greeks. And he had just told them about God who had created this world and made everything in it. And he comes down to the point by saying the times of this ignorance God once overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That means that if you live in Corinth, you've got to repent. If you live in Athens, you've got to repent. If you live in Jerusalem, you've got to repent. And if you live in McMinnville, Tennessee, you've got to repent. That's a change of mind that results in a change of conduct. And then you've got to confess. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession. Confess what? It means that a person has to confess that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You remember Acts chapter 8? Philip and the eunuch are traveling together in a chariot. The eunuch says, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. In verse 37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, that's the good confession. And then be baptized. And again, this is where so many people stop. And it's such the wrong place to stop. You have Saul who was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And while he's traveling on that road to Damascus, a light shone down from heaven, blinded him, brought him to his knees. He was told to go into the city and it will be told him what he must do. He goes there. If you compare Acts chapter 9 along with Acts chapter 26, here in Acts 22, you understand that he was without food, he was praying. And Ananias comes in and says, "Why are you waiting? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized now. Why to wash away your sins? Calling on the name of the Lord. If praying through would have got him through, then certainly Paul would have prayed it enough. If penitence of heart were important, Paul's already shown that he's repented." You see, he still had his sins, and those sins need to be washed away. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, he said there's a light figure, there's an antitypist where so the New King James was it, that now saves us, namely baptism. You see, just like that Old Testament illustration of Noah and the flood, on this side you have the old world and all of its corruption and sin. You have the flood, and on this side of the flood you have... A renewed, cleaned earth. Before you become a Christian, you have your sins laid to your charge. When you are baptized, that is that water, that line of demarcation. And on this side, you are a cleansed person. Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 says that we're raised to walk in newness of life. You see, in a battle for belief, it's not just enough to stop at teaching a person to believe in God. It's not enough to just stop at teaching him that the Bible is also God's Word. It's not enough to stop at proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's essential. But you've got to go ahead and lead a man all the way to the truth To become a New Testament Christian. Everybody who wants to go to heaven. Is going to have to recognize. The value of the Lord's church. In Ephesians 3 and verse 21. He says to him be the glory. In the church by Christ. Jesus to all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory in the church. If I teach you what you ought to be, then I will teach you to be obedient to Christ, to be a member of the church. We're going to sing this encouraging song, this invitation song. It is to encourage you to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do exactly what we have just said. Once you do that, the Lord puts you not in just some human organization, but He puts you into His body, the church. And from there, you can live faithful. Let me add that if you feel tonight that you are not yet ready to do that, don't just go away and forget about this. This is something too precious, too important. If you need to obey the gospel of Christ, ask for a further Bible study. We'll be glad to study the Bible with you anytime. But if you know what you need to do, don't put it off. Respond to the gospel invitation now as together we stand and say.